Our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Peter's declaration about Jesus. Once, when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and still others, that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, The Messiah of God. Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. He sternly ordered them and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then he said to them all, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. I want you to picture at some point in your life when you've been interviewed. We're gonna, we'll get to job interviews, but we have all sorts of kinds of interviews that people go through. Um, you can imagine the, one of the more scary ones is when a police officer stops you. What are you doing here? <laughs> Starts trying to figure out what you're up to. Why are you driving in this neighborhood? Uh, you know, your vehicle doesn't seem to fit this neighborhood. Why, why are you here? Uh, we go through some interviews with, you know, if you've started dating someone, you know, trying to feel each other out of who, who are you? Or if that gets a little bit further, it's interviews with their family members. Uh, are, you, are you good enough for my, my baby? Uh, and then job interviews are another one that, that come up a lot. And, you know, it's a little bit of a nerve-wracking thing because you don't know what they're looking for. You're trying to figure out what the answer they might want to hear from you. And one of the ones that, that I remember hearing at one point, which was a little bit more challenging, is, you know, we, we often ask, what are your strengths or what are your gifts or what are your challenges? Um, but sometimes people ask you, what would your friends say are your strengths? Or your challenges? Or what would your coworkers say are your strengths or your challenges? And then it's, it's not just what is your strengths and challenges, but like what, do, what would other people actually say about you? And there's an extra level of difficulty of that of like, do I even understand what outsiders think of me? And so there's kind of introspection that, that's involved there. And, and our text is going to have Jesus give an interview to his disciples. And on our journey of this uprising series of you know, if Jesus is, is going to be declared king, what does that mean? What kind of kingdom is that? And what does that mean for my life? And so Jesus is going to ask people about who do you say I am? And what does that mean for your life? And so when we enter this text, this interview per se, Jesus starts out and he's kind of alone praying in this scene. In other gospels, there's some geographic settings, but here in Luke, he's just praying alone. And his disciples come near and ask him, and he asks the disciples, who do the crowd say that I am? 
They answer John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and others, you know, one of those ancient prophets that has, has arisen. And that's a very honest question. Who do the crowd say that I am? What are other people saying about me? Sometimes you're the last person to know this big group conversation that's going on about you. And that's especially true for a leader. If Jesus is this leader of this kind of movement, sometimes you get surrounded by the yes people. You only hear kind of some what you want to hear. and You start you know, losing out on some of that real feedback. So he's saying, hey, what are other people saying about me? And they give him an honest answer of all these different figures. Uh, some are saying you're John the Baptist. Uh, remember who, who was executed. Some are saying that you're Elijah or some other prophet of old arisen. And I think the main thing is they're saying you're these figures that are meant to pronounce the coming of the Messiah. Which is falling short from Luke's perspective and falling short from the disciples' perspective. Because instead of saying, they're saying you're the Messiah, they're saying you're the one that comes before and, and announces that person. And so... He's laying out the groundwork. He's, he's trying to figure out what are other people saying, but he gets to the real question. He's like, okay, I want you to be honest, though. Who do you say that I am? You know, it, help, it helps me to know what the others are saying, but you're my close friends. You're my close group of, of disciples. Who do you say that I am? And I think this, this question is a call for us to take ownership of our own faith. Because for so many of us, we grew up and our parents told us, here's what you believe, you go to church, you do these things. And, and, and you have to decide for yourself at some point, when does it become my own faith? And even when you make that decision, at some point you just kind of get into routine. And so if someone were to ask you, why, why does your faith matter? Why do you go to that church? Who is Jesus to you? Suddenly it's not as easy of a, uh, of a question. We've kind of got our Sunday school answers kind of throw out a lot of biblical language. But like, what does that actually mean to you? You know, can you talk in normal conversational talk about who Jesus is to you? And so, at some point, we're, we're going to have to answer that question. And I think if you want to connect to other people around our faith, if you want people to, to join in some of the missions that we do or the ministries or the worship, you have to be able to answer that question. Why does any of this matter? Who is Jesus to you? Not to people thousands of years ago, not to your parents, to you. Who do you say that I am? And Peter gives a good answer. He says, the Messiah of God. And that's a little bit convoluted to an everyday person in America of like, what on earth does Messiah of God mean? Um, it's a little bit churchy kind of language. Um, but the word Messiah, which I think is very deliberate here, um, that word is the same word as Christ. Messiah is like the Hebrew kind of transliteration of, of a word. And, and the Greek form of that word is Christ. So he could have said, you are the Christ. And there are some versions of this, of this story that say that language. But Messiah is, is hitting at that Jewish underlying um, idea and hope. Uh, and so he says, you are the Messiah, which means the anointed one. And in ancient Israel, the anointed one was always the king. Sometimes it's an unnamed king. Sometimes it's kings that you, 
you would recognize their names. Uh, but it would be God's, God's anointed, God's king, who helps uh, lead God's chosen people. Well, that's a little bit hard to have when you lose your king and you are taken into exile and when you return and you don't really rule yourself. And so later on, there's some other nuances where maybe the high priest gets called that or some sort of prophets. But it's rooted in this idea of the king, God's anointed person to lead us. And so that's the title that Peter gives to Jesus. And so many people, when they hear Jesus Christ, they think that's his full name. You know, like it's not his title. Um, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. It became so wound up with who Jesus was that it's almost like a proper name. And so what is it to remember that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ? We have to pause in our story because there's something that's a little bit weird that happens. Peter makes this declaration, you're the Messiah. You're not one of those people who just goes and announces that a Messiah is coming. You are that king. And the story then pauses and it says, he sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone saying the son of man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now this might seem like a little bit of a weird response. You came up with a good answer. Now don't tell anybody. It's not because there's another quiz and it's like, oh, I don't want people to cheat and they got the answer early. Um, but there's this, there's this secrecy motif in the Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where there's probably a theological debate going on in early Christianity saying, if Jesus is Messiah and God's chosen one, why on earth do people reject him? And so it seems like one of the answers is, uh, is that they're deliberately trying not to tell people sometimes in the stories. They do, the Gospels do different things with this, though. So in Mark, he'll say, okay, don't tell anybody that I healed you. And then the person will go and tell everybody. And it gets people mad, and people get upset, and they don't, they don't like what Jesus is doing, and so it, it creates more animosity. Um, and so in some instances, don't tell anybody is because if you tell people, they're going to react negatively against me. On other spots, it's say, don't tell people because... Um, they can't know that because if they know that, maybe then they would react differently. And so there's kind of an inner Christian conversation going on about what, what, what do you do about Jesus' identity and what happened to him? Uh, so it's more complicated than what we can get into probably in this, in this text. But the main thing from this text is he didn't tell them, never tell anybody ever about me. He says, these things have to happen. So there's like a temporary period said, don't talk about it right in this period of time. But it's not never talk about it. At some point, you're going to start proclaiming about my identity. At some point, you need to start sharing who I am. And so we don't have the excuse of, you know, if you proclaim Jesus as Lord, well, why aren't you telling people about who Jesus is? Um, there's no sort of, uh, it's, not a, it's not a Christian virtue to be silent about your faith. Uh, and so, why, why not share about this identity? If you think Jesus is Lord, why would you keep it quiet? So, who do you say that Jesus is? Now, for those of us who answer that Jesus is Messiah, like Peter, uh, the text is not just about who is he as an identity, but what does that mean for your life? So, if you're, if you're one of us who, who says that Jesus is Lord, how should that affect your life? Um, and this is one of my frustrations is so, for so much of Christianity, 
We've made Christianity just about beliefs. Did you believe the right things? Um, And there's another side to this, that those beliefs should infiltrate the whole way you live, that your life should be transformed by that belief. And so we're going to get into what that looks like. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and join in his uprising, how is your life demonstrating that allegiance? Because it's dangerous to live under the reign of King Jesus instead of the King Herods of the world. Uh, And those Herods change names for each person, each generation. Um, But ultimately, at some point, what God is doing in the world contrasts and pushes back against what the kings of the world are teaching. And so Jesus tells the disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. That doesn't seem like a great, um, that doesn't sound like something that's going to really catch on really well. It's like, hey, I I have a great deal for you. If you want to join me, you got to lose your life. Uh, It's not exactly a great public rallying cry on the surface, Um, but there's something really powerful that is going on beneath what he's saying. Now, we've talked a little bit about crucifixion in the Roman Empire, but to be crucified was to lose your estate. Like, you become an enemy of the state, and you lose all of your things. Your life doesn't matter. Your things don't matter. Uh, And so Rome is going to reject uh, your your political message, your, your, your revolution, or whatever it is that they're upset with you about. And they're going to execute you as an enemy, trying to shame you, trying to dishonor you, trying to cut you off from others and deter others from taking your path. So what is it to take up your cross daily? One thing I think it's interesting is Luke's one of the, is the only gospel that says the daily part. And I think if you just say, take up your cross, it might exclusively feel like just the martyrdom thing of uh, you have one destination point and that is a death point. Take it up and go to that death point. But there's something spiritualizing and kind of habitual that's, that's being implied by take up your cross daily. And so I think it's about a way of living, not just a way of dying. It's a way of living that demonstrates a death of sorts, a death to worldly pursuits. It's a death to uh, whatever it is that is material and insignificant in the cosmic scope of things. Um, you know, is, would you normally take up a cross to go get that amazing boat you want to take out on the lake or the status of the job that you want or whatever kind of vacation trips that you want to take. Like, we have a lot of pursuits in life, but not all of those pursuits are worth giving up everything for, your whole life, your whole, your whole uh, being. So what should you take uh, a cross to? You know, when I, when I think about the question, what does Christianity cost, um, whether that's for me or for us, you know, this image is very strong about losing your life, taking your cross up daily, And what has it cost? You know, there's some superficial answers. Like, uh, it's cost me a lot of get-to-know-you, like, chit-chat times. Oh, what do you do? Oh, well, here we go. Uh, They always say, don't talk about religion and politics. And you're like, well, I have to. They asked what I do. We're already jumping into this conversation. Nice to get to know you. Um, 
You know, there's, there's, there's little things. There's hard things like growing up with certain stances, certain beliefs, and realizing, I don't know that loving God and loving my neighbor means I can still have that stance. And there's hard things about giving your kind of stance and your, your, your beliefs over to God. Um, practically, it's meant for me giving up proximity to family or dear friends. You know, as God calls you wherever God calls you, it's not always in the comfy spot. Uh, and so God might call you into uncomfortable situations. Um, sometimes it means giving up being uh, one of the majority. Like there's majority opinions, majority stances, and people are going to criticize you of how dare you take that stance. What does Christianity cost you? I'm curious, uh, how many hours of worship in a row would it take for you to get, oh, this is, now this is dangerous, how many hours of worship in a row to get bored? How many hours of worship in a row before you're like, I got to get out of here? I don't think, for, mo- for many of us, it wouldn't be very many hours, I don't think. Um, maybe you heard on the news a story of a church in the Netherlands who re- just concluded, um, within the last few months, they just concluded a continuous worship service that ran for 96 days, 24-7. It was approximately 2,300 hours straight of worship. But the question is, why? Like, who do you say that I am? Why do this? And if you can't answer that, then, then people don't understand and they're not excited, they're not inspired. But they had a why. The Bethel Church in The Hague started its nonstop service on October 26th to protect an Armenian immigrant family from deportation. In the Netherlands, there's a law. You can't arrest someone during a worship service. It's a very old law, but one that still exists. And this family who had fled genocide from Armenia, uh, they fled like nine years ago. And they've been living for almost a decade in this new community. And they had little, little, little kids. And suddenly, the court told them, you got to go home. Home to what? What is home when, when your, your people were being slaughtered? Um, how would you survive? And so what happened was this church decided to keep throwing a worship service together for as long as it took to have some sort of uh, temporary relief, some sort of the court saying, we're going to think about this more, we're going to treat the situation differently. And so... They kept having worship services and they kept inviting other churches, other pastors to come. So hundreds of pastors came uh, from the Netherlands, from Germany, from France, from Belgium, and rotated through that church from October to January. And for many of them, it wasn't just about that family. They were concerned about all children of asylum seekers, um, not just that family. And so what was happening was the children might be able to get asylum but only if the families cooperated with the, the main law. And the main law was saying the parents had to leave. And they didn't want to separate from their kids. And so the church was protesting that you're separating these families. Um, have some compassion. And so they risked their status in their society, rejecting the kind of the political 
allegiances that maybe people expect them to follow. And um, people wanted to know why. And so kind of that religious group, their group uh, and, and the church gave some answers to that question. Um, but ultimately, just to, to pause before we get to that, uh, eventually the courts gave a temporary stay on this order and said that um, parents, including the, the people in, of the parents of that family there, um, wouldn't have to necessarily be immediately you know, taken from their homes uh, for their kids to have a chance at this uh, asylum status. But here's what the community center wrote. Why would you, why would you do this? They said, uh, the Protestant Church of The Hague respects court orders, but finds itself confronted with a dilemma. The choice between respecting the government and respecting the rights of a child. And further, the chairman of their general council uh, wrote, we want to love God and our neighbor and we thought that this was a clear opportunity to put the love of our neighbor into reality. It matters who you say Jesus is. And it matters maybe even more how you make that identity thing a reality around you. Like if we want to say Jesus is Lord, but we're not willing to actually live by that claim, what are we doing? Um, why are we even here? If... if if we say we believe these things, why not live these things? And so here was a community that was struck by, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. What can I do to support my neighbor? And so in their context, it was 2,300 hours or so of worship in a row. Uh, and that's not cheap. That means running the lights on. That means keeping the temperature right. That means a lot of things. Uh, you know, it's who knows what the community around you thinks. Maybe they don't want that family there. And so they risked a lot just for a family. And so I want us to think about what cost our faith has for us. Do we live out that Jesus is Lord? I had a preaching professor in seminary who had an interesting wish for us. He, he told us a story about how he didn't get voted out of his church, but it was close enough that he felt like, I need to go anyway. And the reason he got voted out was the church did a directory. And the directory might not seem like the place in which people would be upset, but it means we have to share who our family units are. And the, the plainness of sight of who that family unit was uh, created controversies and upset uh, fights. And so he thought, for me to lead, they have to kind of come together and decide on who they want to lead them, and I, I should go. And you hear the story, and you hear about the grief and the pain that people were going through in the midst of that process. But then he turns to us, and he says, I hope that someday you'll have a hill worth dying for. You know, you think you want to avoid those hard things. He's like, actually, I want you to have a thing that matters so much you're willing to die for it. And that's not a hill worth killing for. Sometimes we get confused. It's not who will I, who will I obliterate on the way to making my way to this hill. Um, but does my faith mean so much to me that I want uh, to do everything I can to support somebody, uh, even if that means that I'm going to be harmed for it? You know, that hill worth, worth dying for, I don't know about you, but it's not carpet color. Uh, it's not 
so many things that we spend a lot of time having to discuss. Um, it's not, you know, the arrangement of a room or, or uh, you know, needing to get X number of songs in during a service or whatever it is. But what is that hill worth dying for? Where does your faith matter so much that people's lives are at stake that we have to act? Where's, where's that hill that the love of God and love of neighbor takes us to? I know one of those hills for me is about us being a place where, where people of all types uh, have a safe place to worship. It's not always safe to worship for some people. And sometimes that's uh, the fact that we have both very conservative and very progressive people. And the fact that we can be a place in which both people feel like they're able to encounter God. Uh, how do we be a space where all people have the opportunity to experience God? Um, and it's not just about this, this worship space, but how can we be a community that is just, that cares about the well-being of every person? You know, that has a heart for the people that have to, uh, the people struggling to survive. You know, we talked last week about 42% of the county living at the Alice level or below where, you know, if they lose that paycheck, life is just going to unravel. Um, how do we care about our neighbors. I just want to conclude with a few calls to action. First, we have to figure out who Jesus is to us, figure out what our faith means. Who do we say Jesus is? And if you're early on your, your faith journey, um, I hope that we're a space that people can walk alongside you as you answer that question. Um, but if you're on this journey for a while, I hope that you've formulated that question and your life experiences are connected to that answer. Even more so, I hope we can share that story, share who Jesus is, why our faith matters, and not to be silent, and not to only share that with words, but with our life, that our actions, our concerns, our, our daily living is a demonstration of who Jesus is to us. So, even though the cross is the symbol of death, shame, pain, my prayer for us, though, is that we can actually be able to identify a cross worth bearing daily. Can we find that thing worth dying for? It's not just dying to something. Here's the things I'm giving up in life, but here's what I'm dying for. Here's, here's the vision of where God is leading us. May we find the courage and the strength to carry our cross through this season of Lent. Um, as we prepare for Good Friday, may we see our own crosses as we read on stories of Jesus bearing his cross. But may we find that not just to find pain, but to find life and hope and God's kingdom at work. So may your hearts be warmed into action, living out the confessions of our faith. Would you pray with me? Lord, I know sometimes it can feel like um, our faith is Sometimes it just feels like maybe it's just boring. Of like, oh, I, well, I believe the right things. And, you know, is there, is there anything more to this? And Lord, I just ask that you would call all of us to see your heart for the world around us. That we would see where you are at work and that you would touch our hearts so we'd want to give even more of ourselves um, to join you in that work. Lord, I, I just ask that you would help us to be more than just people who identify as Christian but people who live out that faith in a way that people recognize um, 
the one that we serve. Lord, uh, bearing our crosses is a tough task, and I just ask that you would give strength, courage, wisdom, uh, hope to all that are present, to all who feel the weight of that cross right now, um, and to those who feel like they can't feel it and that they're looking for it. Lord, just be with us all. Um, help us to be more aware of your presence as we, as we finish our worship service. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.